the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org slash grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, Cecilia and Shira. Uh, congratulations. It's great to have you. I've been covering Facebook for many years, but even I learned um, from your book. Um, and it is an ugly truth inside Facebook's battle for domination. It details the rise of Facebook to global popularity. It's fall into the depths of what some might describe as conspiracy peddling and hate mongering. Um, I want to start with David Kirkpatrick, who wrote the original Facebook book, The Facebook Effect, who told me he thinks that your book is, quote, a litany of crimes meticulously reported. I'd love to hear, in a nutshell, those crimes. Please lay them out for our audience. I just think that's, um, I take that as a compliment from David. He really, as you said, wrote the first book about Facebook, and it's a fantastic book about the early days of Facebook, and we honestly learned so much from his book because it laid out who Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg are as people, and when you ask me about crimes, what I actually think about are patterns, and what our book demonstrates is that patterns that were established really early on in the company's founding, the growth metric, growth as any cost, move fast and break things, other expressions which involve expletives, which I'm not going to repeat here, um, for engineers to ship out products as quickly as possible. All of that continue to drive Facebook, and it is core to how people at that company function. And so whatever has happened, whether it is data privacy breaches, people's personal data being misused by engineers at the company, hate speech, misinformation, election interference, all of that stems back to Facebook, A, needing to grow as quickly as possible, and B, needing to essentially have an algorithm dominating their platform to keep you invested as a user as many hours of the day as they possibly can so that they can continue that growth. Now, the consequences of the crimes or whatever you want to call them are you know, monumental, right? Possibly life and death. So with the election, for example, do you think that Donald Trump would have been elected Cecilia, you can take this one without mm -hmm. Facebook. Well, I think it's undeniable that Facebook was a huge platform for Donald Trump. He had 30 million users, um, followers actually on the platform. I, I think it's also really important to know that Facebook helped make Donald Trump. He used the platform better than so many other politicians, particularly in the U.S., before him. And he was able to exploit, really, the business model, which had political ads that were targeted to particular demographics. And he was able to exploit, really, the algorithms that we go into so deeply in the book to show, to get his content to the top of news feeds, to get that conversation going. He understood how to drive attention and conversation. So 
As to whether Facebook, he could have won without Facebook, I think it's undeniable that Facebook and his use of social media was core to his success. How do you think the book is being covered and received? And by the way, instant national bestseller, it's being reviewed in a lot of places. Do you feel that uh, others sense the alarm, feel the alarm that you're trying to convey in the book? I think that we know that lawmakers are reading our book. We know that people in Washington are reading it and taking out of it lessons. And I, we have heard from some of them that they are alarmed, that they do see things in our book, which are a huge cause for concern. I, I think we were sort of curious to see how Facebook was going to respond, and particularly executives. Were they going to feel some of that alarm? Were they perhaps going to do more than apologize, but rather recognize some of the errors in the past? And it's been interesting. Mark Zuckerberg's only given one interview since our book came out, and he spent that talking about the metaverse, the idea of wanting to create a comprehensive universe in which people will live their, their whole lives. And sort of an, if you've watched Ready Player One, that's, that's the idea. Um, and that to me doesn't read as someone who's alarmed about what he's created or really spending time at the moment thinking about some of the problems our book really, um, you know, catalogs. Well, I actually did get a comment from Facebook on your book. So here's what they told me. By the way, there have been rave reviews. Facebook's review, not so rave, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, they say, this book presents a false narrative that relies heavily on anecdotes supplied by mostly unnamed critics. We made two dozen executives available for interviews, and the authors had an opportunity to ask any questions they wanted. Instead, they purposefully left these perspectives out of the book. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I, I think Facebook is really used to controlling the message. And we did talk to dozens of executives, highest level executives that they had supplied to us, but also that we had been able to secure interviews with on our own. And what the, the executives that they often supplied to us were, the exec, what they said were oftentimes very much, they hand very closely to their PR messaging points. And it's not useful, I think, for our readers to hear sort of evading the questions, um, uh, talking points that don't necessarily really address some of our core core problems and questions that we're trying to explore, which are the different episodes that we explore, like Russian interference, privacy abuses, misinformation on the election, as well as COVID. These are really important, very key problems that the company has faced. And oftentimes, executives didn't address that. I do want to address one thing about the people who we spoke to. We spoke to almost more than 400 people. The vast majority of those people are employees, current and former. Many are current employees. They're absolutely not disgruntled. Many of them are very happy to be at Facebook. They believe in the potential of Facebook. They really want to see Facebook change and make make better decisions. They want to see the executive leadership make better decisions. So the idea that they were disgruntled is sort of a disservice to them. They spoke to us often at great risk because they really wanted what they believe to be the truth to be presented in our book. So we're grateful to them. Yeah. And I, I just want to add one thing, which is, you know, one thing we show in our book and in our articles for the New York Times is that Facebook has a pattern of delay, deny, deflect. And for me, that response by them is such deflection. They may have made executives available, but, you know, I remember those meetings well. When we asked them about particular scenes and particular meetings, they would often give a line of, well, like, I can't remember that meeting on that day, but misinformation and election interference is something that plagues every social media company, and we take it seriously. Now, I mean, if readers found that particular quote illuminating, then um, maybe we should have included it. But to us, the many, many sources who spoke in detail about meetings were more important to include 
in the book than really vague PR statements that people have probably read in dozens of news articles until now. Um, you didn't talk to Mark Zuckerberg for the book, right? And you say at the outset that you did a few off the records with Cheryl, but that those yeah. could not be used. Yeah. Do you think that if either of them had spoken to you on the record, that that would have influenced the ultimate product? It depends on what they said. Um, it's hard to say without knowing what they, if they were willing to sit with us and give real answers, right, to, to account for their behavior at that time. Mark Zuckerberg, why didn't you ask for regular meetings on Russian election interference once you were told that it was a problem? Sheryl Sandberg, why did you say what you said to members of Congress? Were you not reading your own security team's reports? If they were willing to give us real answers, we'd love to include that because I think Cecilia and I often, you know, even now wonder that ourselves. Mm -hmm. So as a, as a journalist, who, you know, and I'm sure you get this question too for you know, the various people that you cover, I often get the question, you know, do you think Mark Zuckerberg is a bad person or Sheryl Sandberg is a bad mm. person? Are they malicious? Did they intend for these problems? Was there some sort of directional um, you know, path here that, that, that they were following? Can you answer that question? How do you answer that question? Is it I malicious? Think, are they malicious? Are mm, they naive? Mm. Or, or neither? I think that the the memo uh, that Andrew Bosworth, the vice president, wrote and where our, the title of our book comes from, it's called The Ugly, really encapsulates a lot of their motivation. I think Facebook understands that because they believe so strongly in what they say is connecting the world, that's sort of a euphemism for growing and scaling, that there will be collateral damage, there will be consequences, and they've accepted that. That's the calculus. So I think that when they think long-term, they believe that history will judge them well, because in the end, connecting the world or growth in their minds is a de facto good thing. That's quoted in Andrew Wadsworth's memo. Um, so that's the kind of way that I think that they process what's happening right now at Facebook. They believe that there are definitely mistakes and they feel badly about some of the mistakes. But until growth is no longer the, the number one objective and that that you know, driving into new markets and creating new technologies that potentially are dangerous and not really having a security apparatus in place that catches up to all of that growth, they're going to be faced with these same problems over and over again. So as far as whether they're malicious or not, it's, you know, I don't think we can say we can only judge by their actions and by the way that they, what we understand very clearly is the way that they process the sort of dichotomy that they face with growth coming with consequences. So, you know, there, and there are so many themes in the book, but one overarching one seems to be Facebook is too big, and there are many problems that come from that. I mean, obviously, there's so much in the history. I mean, the, the election has, the uh, 2016 election has come and gone. But what are the problems that you see happening at Facebook right now that you want to raise that alarm about? Yeah. You know, you just mentioned the 2016 elections having come and gone, and it's true, they have. But the problems that were that were raised in that election, and which, by the way, resurfaced in 2020, are affecting countries all over the world. The idea that you're going to create a carve-out for politicians, for elected leaders, to be able to say things that the average user cannot say, led to problems here in the United States, 
let's not forget during the pandemic when Donald Trump said that UV light and disinfectants could be a cure or a treatment for COVID and Facebook allowed that to stand on the platform because they had created a carve out for the president. There are currently presidents and prime ministers in other countries that are using that carve out in a similar way and including in countries like Hungary and the Philippines that have elections coming up this year. They can't afford to wait for Facebook to make up its mind on elected leaders. They can't afford to wait the two years for Donald Trump to be eligible to come back on the platform for Facebook to make these kinds of critical decisions. What about the response? Facebook is just a mirror to, for society. Should they really hold up a mirror that's better than it looks? Mm. Well, I think this idea that Facebook is just a mirror for society and is a neutral platform would be true if they didn't have algorithmic, algorithmic amplification that really drove the technology, that drove the content that you see at the top of your newsfeed, that recommends certain groups that you should enter, that gets conversation really circle, circling around the most emotive content, content that makes you angry or fearful or happy or what have you. Unless, I mean, that is actually what's is, is, is what makes it not neutral. So the idea that they are just representing what people say is not necessarily true because they're also trying to tell you what perhaps you might find most interesting, not necessarily just reflecting what people are saying generally in the platform. So it's not like every voice has equal measure. It's the voices that have the, the loudest, sort of the most cantankerous sometimes, some of the most seductive and rancorous kind of con um, conversational content, like uh, uh, appeal is what drives conversation. Um, I'm curious how your reporting process evolved because you know, even going back to like 2008, 2009, it almost seemed like regulators were on to Facebook's privacy issues, but didn't carry that forward. What yeah. happened? What happened? Yeah, it's, I mean, we, we really explore this in depth. Washington really dropped the ball. In many ways, they began to take notice in 2007 when Facebook introduced this advertising program called Beacon. And it was a big privacy debacle, and it was a first realization by the public that Facebook had so much control over your data, and they could actually expose you in many ways. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, took notice, and they eventually reached a settlement with Facebook on this. But there was never any legislation that was created, a comprehensive privacy policy. Um, regulation for in the United States, there was never really any true accounting for the company, no oversight of the company. Right now, the internet companies in the US are just not even regulated. I think there's a combination of things. I think Facebook and other internet companies were held in such high regard for so long, and particularly over the Obama administration. Um, and I think that there was a real reluctance to squash this very bright light in the economy, especially after the recession. There was this idea that these companies were generating jobs and they were so great and they were cool and they were interesting and innovative. Um, and I think that that was something that Facebook and other companies really rode on for quite some time. And the other thing is, I think Facebook has an enormously powerful, as do other internet companies, Facebook has an enormously powerful lobbying operation in, the, in Washington. Right now, they have the biggest lobbying operation of any U.S. company in Washington. And those lobbyists, their number one job is to protect the business. And that means slowing down regulation that can truly affect their bottom line and can truly slow down their business model. Facebook says in every single ad that anyone who's on this right now on this on this um, program has seen on TV, newspapers, everywhere, they, they say they embrace regulation, but truly regulation that addresses algorithmic amplification and behavioral advertising is something that they are not necessarily willing to address. 
remember that photograph of President Obama in, I don't know, I think it was 2010, he's seated between Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs. And mm. it's dinner with 10 or 12 tech leaders. Yeah. Do you think the Obama administration gave big tech a pass? Yeah, I think that a lot of people in retrospect would say that Obama, the Obama administration did. They approved some of the biggest mergers during the Obama administration. Um, the Obama administration's FTC did. They approved Instagram, uh, Facebook's acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp in 2012 and 2014. They allowed for Google to also approve uh, to uh, merge with many other companies as well as as other big tech companies. Um, so, yes, in terms of consolidation, yes. There was also no legislation that was enacted during that time. It was just a time where face where Facebook and other internet companies got a big pass. The other thing is, you know, we, we write in the book that um, there was such a revolving door too between government and Silicon Valley companies where you had a lot of leadership coming from Google and Facebook in and out of the Obama administration. And, you know, during this very formative and important time, Facebook hired people directly from the White House, like Martin Levine, who's now the chief business officer of Facebook, as well as other officials from face from um, the White House directly. So there was just so much commingling and there was just such a relationship that was interlocked. And I do think that it's it's easy to judge in retrospect, but certainly now it's I think it's unmistakable that some of the most the most consequential decisions related to mergers happened then as well as no regulation. So what's the solution? Is it is it regulation and is that regulation going to happen because a judge just dismissed the FTC lawsuit and the one coming from the states as well, the judge saying they didn't do enough to prove that Facebook is a monopoly and, you know, you have multiple big tech companies now asking for Lena Khan, the chair of the FTC, to recuse herself from big tech mm -hmm. investigations. So if regulation is the solution, then there's the question of whether or not any regulation will actually come to pass. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a big, messy fight for many years. I just, I definitely think that's true. But I do think history is a guide here. I think every single communications platform has become regulated, starting from the telephone to public airwaves, broadcast TV, to cable TV, to broadband internet, everything becomes regulated at some point. It's just such it's just such a powerful and important part of who we are as Americans to have communications tools with some sort of guardrails involved in it. I do think that it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard to regulate speech. And that's probably the thorniest thing and the most pressing problem right now, misinformation on Facebook. Um, as far as antitrust goes and breaking up the company, I mean, there is a lot of will right now in Washington. There is definitely people who are vocally, they're not at all hiding the fact that they want to break up Facebook. I mean, this is what the, the FTC as well as members of Congress have been aiming for. The courts are going to be a big problem. The courts are conservative on antitrust. So it's going to be a big fight. But I also do think that if anything, it's going to be a slog for Facebook too, because having to deal with an antitrust case that deal, that drags on for a long time is, is hard on the companies. not maybe not so hard on resources, but reputationally and otherwise as well as a distraction. Some of the most fascinating parts of the book are your analysis, your reporting on the evolution of Mark and Cheryl's relationship. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about, talk to us about what you learned about how that relationship um, changed over the years for better or for worse. You know, in the outset, we really wanted to understand them as people and what drew them to each other. And it sort of became clear that initially they served a function for one another. Mark needed Cheryl and Cheryl needed Mark. 
he didn't want to deal with Washington. He didn't want to deal with policy things, policy questions. And he wanted someone who was going to help him monetize the company. And Sheryl Sandberg was coming from a place that Google wished she'd kind of risen as far as she could, she could. And she wanted to take that next step. She wanted to be a bigger name, maybe, you know, set out for herself as, as an individual, as a C-suite executive. And so initially, it just seems like they have this great honeymoon phase where they are really, you know, in terms of being business partners in lockstep with what they are getting from the other. And as you enter sort of the Trump years, which is the part that our book focuses on, you see Trump as a president not just test Facebook and what its policies are, but test Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg's relationship. Because repeatedly, she is in disagreement with him over calls he makes on Trump. She's got to answer to lawmakers in Washington, especially those in the Democratic Party that she's been close to for some time. And I think she kind of sees him taking missteps. Um, one example of this in our book is when a video of Nancy Pelosi is uploaded, which is doctored to make it seem as if she's inebriated. And Cheryl Sandberg looks at that and says, we should take this down. It's clearly misleading people who cannot tell it's been edited. And it's making the Speaker of the House look inebriated when she was not. And Mark Zuckerberg kind of makes this odd call where he says, well, it's not a deep fake. And so we'll take down deep fakes, but not doctored videos. I want to note that right after he made that call, it was repeatedly challenged because how do you draw the line there between what's a deep fake and what's doctored? And it's such a great, you know, such a strange line to have to walk, really. Um, and so we see her voice not being heard. And I think ultimately we end the book on this note of, you know, Sheryl Sandberg largely being sidelined at the company. I think a really important thing to remember, though, is that she is still important in one very important, very, very crucial way. She still runs the business. The business is incredibly successful. The business has had $85 billion in revenue last year. The, the shareholders have shown how appreciative they are. They, they, the company's now valued at $1 trillion, oftentimes, in the market. So she, is, she still has a vital role. As far as all the other things that she dealt with, these big policy decisions engaging with Washington communications, she's has a she has a lesser role. I mean, I think one executive put it well when he's when this person said to us, it used to be that Facebook had a number one and a number two, Mark and Cheryl. Now Facebook has a number one and many. So there are other people who are taking more of the the kind of taking over some of those responsibilities she had, but importantly, Mark Zuckerberg is taking over many more of those decisions as well. And I also think it's really interesting to see what well, we were surprised to discover that Sheryl Sandberg was supposed to be sort of a balance to Mark. She was supposed to pro provide balance to Mark and maybe sort of balance out his not so great instincts sometimes. She was supposed to be in many ways the adult in the room when she was hired is what many people, how many people described her early on. And she actually didn't push back as strongly as we thought she might have. I think she was very careful to choose her fights. I think she was afraid of upsetting Mark too much. And that surprised us because in a way, she did have a lot of power and authority. This is Mark's company, absolutely. But if anybody couldn't have stood up to him, it would have been her. And instead, we found that she didn't, not only did she not push back that much, but he oftentimes cast blame on her for a lot of the public image fallouts for Facebook when a lot of the problems stem from his side of the business, the product side. So it was a, a very fraught relationship towards it currently even, but especially over the last four years that really surprised us and we spool out in the book. Um, your excerpt, uh, I, I believe the wording was something like their relationship did not survive the Trump administration. And how do you know for sure? We, of course, I believe on the same day that broke saw them walking together at 
Sun Valley. Um, what do you believe the state of their relationship is right now? And what's the evidence you have to support that? Well, you know, we've spoken to executives that work with them day in, day out, you know, people on the M team close to Mark, as well as people close to Sheryl Sandberg, who just have bluntly said to us, no matter which side of that they're on, whether they're Mark's people or Cheryl's people, that the relationship is not what it once was. It's no coincidence that when our book excerpt came out, they did that. I would I would note quite staged walk together um, in Sun Valley. They hadn't been photographed together in Sun Valley for quite some time. And I think that was meant to be a bit of a PR move to counteract what our excerpt said. It doesn't change what people close to them are saying, which is that they are not as close as they once were, and that Mark has many people that he goes to for advice now, whether on policy decisions in Washington or what's coming down the road in Europe, that he did not formally have, and that Mark is empowered. He's empowered himself to make decisions that he formally outsourced to people like Sheryl Sandberg or other executives. And so... You know, I, I just think that those many, many executives at the top that we've spoken to, they've, they've been in lockstep about this. They say that it's just unequivocal that their relationship has shifted and it's not what it once was. Now, as Cecilia mentioned, you know, Facebook just reported its latest quarter, bigger than ever. I believe they're on track to hit $100 billion in revenue. Mm, For the first time, almost 3 billion users across Facebook's family of apps and um you know kind of despite all of the the the, the reputational issues um your reporting and the re reporting of others facebook continues to grow and so you know do you think that any of this will ever actually impact uh the size of the company like do you think the company will ever slow down it seems like there have been so many if quarter after quarter you know we ask analysts like is this the beginning of something? And it just never is. The right. company keeps growing. I mean, they, they keep growing because they're growing in other markets, largely. Mm -hmm. They know that they've plateaued in the United States and Europe, which are incredibly lucrative markets for them, and that they're really losing followers among young Americans and young Europeans. I think that is something that is very concerning to Mark Zuckerberg and Charles Sandberg. As long as they have those other markets to grow in, they'll continue to show a great bottom line, right? That they'll continue to show fantastic numbers. And really, as long as they have those other apps, the WhatsApp and the Instagram, whatnot, are fueling a lot of that growth. But, you know, reputationally, they've taken really serious hits. One of the things we have in our last chapters is that for years, Facebook has been asking its own users, do you think we're good for the world? Do you think that we care about people? And those numbers plummeted. Following the 20s, following the revelations of Russian election interference, following the revelations of Cambridge Analytica, they've never recovered. And I think any analyst looking at that is going to say, right, like if the average person is just doesn't believe that you care about the world or that you're good for people, and you're a social media platform that relies on people sharing cute photos of their dogs and their children, sooner or later that, that's gonna come back and that's gonna have an effect on the bottom line. So do you think Facebook will keep getting bigger? Or at some point will it not? And how much bigger? Will Facebook get? You know, it's with, I was really interested to hear in that earnings call and in, in past earnings calls, the calls, how much they are concerned about Apple's, Apple's move when it comes to um, data tracking on apps and how they believe that that decision by Apple to make it harder, essentially, to collect data um, within apps that go through the app store um, will create headwinds for, for Facebook and their business model. So I, it's, it was interesting for me because that was a marketplace 
sort of activity that was having an effect on Facebook. It was absolutely external. It was not regulatory. It was a decision by another company. So that that struck me as quite interesting how the market can move things for Facebook. The other thing that I, I do think regulation, though, it could it take a long time and move forward. I, I was really intrigued also by hearing from the FTC recently that they're thinking much more hard and closely. They're looking more closely at algorithmic amplification. They're looking at behavioral data, um, business models, um, advertising models, um, things that I had not heard before. These are the first, this is like the first time I've heard actually regulators talking about these things that I, I think really address the heart of how Facebook functions and works and succeeds. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the forces will be external for sure. If there's going to be any sort of change to the business, it's not Mark Zuckerberg is not leaving anytime soon. And he's still the majority voting shareholder, um, so these external forces are, are interesting. I don't know how much effect they'll have though. I'm curious how the reporting, uh, and writing process evolved because, you know, oftentimes the book you start out to write doesn't end up being the mm -hmm. book that you actually write and you learn so many new things along the way. What did you yeah. intend for this book to begin to be when you started and how did that change as you move forward? funny in some ways it didn't in some ways we kind of came full circle yeah we um we started off with wanting to do an invest a book of investigative journalism because that's what we had done with our article and that's what Cecilia and I really are and along the way we sort of at times toyed with the idea of having it be a book more of arguments and ideas and um you know perhaps shifting the focus slightly and I think we ultimately came back to where we started which was that we really wanted it to be like a fast-paced read a bit of a page turner for people and we wanted it to be driven by plots and scenes and characters that you know the reader would walk away feeling like they truly understood who these people were and what the room felt like when they made decisions um the one thing that did change is the timeline we started writing this book nearly two years ago I think yeah and we had originally thought that we might publish it even and have it out before the 2020 elections that obviously um, changed as the 2020 elections neared and we realized that Facebook's role was going to be incredibly interesting and consequential and that the, the test of what happened on November 6th was going to have to make it into the book and then obviously when November 6th didn't prove to be quite as decisive a day as some people thought it was going to be it, it extended out from there I think in some ways we could have kept this book going for months and months and never ended oh, yeah. it Speaking of the characters and the color, I mean, I know you've talked to so many employees. You still talk to employees. You said that many of them are happy. And I often talk to people who work at Facebook who are like, it's great. It's a great place to work. Um, you know, they, they amazing benefits, um, you know, certainly see the problems. Actually, for many of the employees I talk to, the toughest part is the reputational issues, mm -hmm. which, and of course, this is all anecdotal. They don't necessarily feel within the company. Um, you know, what do employees tell you, um, you know, if the alarm is not shared within, will change actually happen? I think that people are happy. What I mean by that, the people who we do talk to who are happy, they're happy with the potential of Facebook. Sometimes they're happy with whatever they're working on. Um, I think they're very distraught by some of the decisions that they see leadership make. When when Mark Zuckerberg told staff at a Q&A that explained why he decided to keep Trump's post after the George Floyd protests, where Trump was essentially warning that shooting, you know, looting leads to shooting, 
incredibly, it was incredibly painful for a lot of employees. And as we know, and we've all reported on this, there was a, there was a virtual walkout. This was during COVID lockdown. Um, many people told me that that was a breaking point for them, that that was just like the, the straw that broke the camel's back for them, that it was just too much. Like there was, they were able to accept some of the lines that they thought were crossed, but because they believed that the company was working on it, they were hurt, their, their problems, they were hiring thousands of moderators, they're expanding the security team, that they were at least on the right track. And internally, they hear a lot from executives about how much they care and how much they do want to fix the problem. But I, I do think that there is oftentimes a lot of ambivalence, even among the people who say they're happy with their jobs and happy with the potential. I think they also absorb and they understand that that Facebook is has a lot of problems. I do think a lot of people want to be part of something that could be big and consequential, and they are part of something that's big and consequential. They're just really distraught. And one of the reasons why they talk to us is because they want us to understand that as well as they want to understand what's really happening, not just beyond the talking points that Facebook presents. I, I want to add that, you know, I, um, I've heard from a lot of Facebook employees since the book came out. And these are people that still work at the company, talk to us. If you ask them, do you like your job? They'd say, yeah, I love my job. I love my colleagues. I love the benefits. I even like the special project I'm working on. And they speak to us because there's a part of the company or a meeting or a situation that happened that they're not comfortable with, that they want to come to light so that executives are pressured to do differently next time. And I, as Cecilia said, I, I just think there's this hope among many of them that by staying at Facebook, they'll help fix some of those wrongs. Um, as you mentioned at the beginning, Mark is talking a lot about the metaverse now. He's very excited about this convergence of physical and digital worlds and wants Facebook to own that yeah. how do you feel about that it's so more i mean it's everyone i've spoken to recently yeah. has been of course right of course mark wants this mark's a product guy he's started off as a product guy and still is and whatever the new shiny thing is that people in tech are chasing whether that's a blockchain currency like you know libra the one he started or now the metaverse that's what mark is interested in being in because he's still the guy that's looking around his shoulder making sure that some new tech startup doesn't come along the way and, and, you know, boot Facebook out of its position as being the low, you know, the global leader in social media, the way, I mean, let's remember Facebook did this to MySpace, right? They did this to other companies. So he's aware that a company can come along and eventually make Facebook obsolete. How has, I feel like we talked a little bit more about Cheryl than Mark. How has he evolved over the years? In some ways, it almost seems like he cares less about Facebook's image than he did. Uh, he sort of He's almost maturing a bit, cracking jokes at his, himself. There was that Fourth of July thing, which I think it was a joke. Um, I think it was a joke. <laughs> I, I certainly got a laugh. Um, is it better to be understood than liked? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I think he's. I think he's remarkably consistent in many ways, um, and. And I think that re that still stands true. It's better to be understood than liked, um, as he has said. Um, look, we are we have watched Mark Zuckerberg grow up in front of our eyes. Like we have watched him create a website. Many of us were the earliest users. We've watched him from 
you know, his earliest post-college years, you know, wearing his Adidas flip-flops, which I guess he still wears at the Sun Valley video. He was still wearing those, but, um, you know, and to somebody who has one of the biggest foundations um, and has, you know, is meeting with people like Anthony Fauci and talking about really big policy issues and global leaders. Um, I, I think that, you know, we are, watching him mature. And unfortunately, I believe that we're watching him evolve and mature with his decisions with, and, and that, 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 I'm sorry, that maturation is reflected in his decisions. He is making a lot of these big decisions on speech and particularly in a very ad hoc fashion. You know, he comes out with a very declarative speech at Georgetown University in 2019, where he lays out his vision for free expression and why Facebook should allow politicians to essentially flout every other rule that every other user has to abide by. And he explains that his vision is that, you know, Facebook's a fifth estate and that fact check, that the public will fact check politicians, et cetera. And then we see, you know, actually the politicians are really going to test that much more than you expected. So we see him vacillate and we see him sort of evolve and change his mind on certain things, at least little by little. Um, he's iterating, if you will, as Silicon Valley people say, like on his 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 vision of speech. So I think he's in many ways remarkably consistent in that I believe he believes strongly in himself and he has an incredible confidence in his own his own thinking and his ideas. He's is still incredibly competitive and ambitious. This is why he has introduced the idea of the metaverse and his interest in it. He is none of this has changed from even his middle school days. I I think that we're only seeing his maturation and evolution in that he wants to be more of a public figure before he didn't seem to care but we're we're seeing that he wants to be respected more as a public figure do you think that'll happen it could depending on what happens you know he's got years ahead of him he's still young he's in his late 30s um as far as you know company chief executives go he's fairly young I think that Mark takes a very historic view of his own reputation and he sort of imagines in in a hundred years when history books note the first truly global social media company, they'll they'll note him. And he thinks about how they're going to see his decisions in a hundred years time. And I imagine um, from speaking to people close to him that he thinks that overwhelmingly he'll be seen as a positive figure and not a negative one. This is the person who studies the Roman Empire for fun. <laughs> so his his view of these things, I think, is slightly different. He doesn't think or care much about daily headlines. I love the way you describe Facebook at the outset, saying it's the most consequential social experiment of our time. How do you expect that experiment to evolve? You know, if this is, you know, the last decade or two, what does the next one hold? I think they're going to have to contend with what it means to be global. I mean, that's something I think I come back to often. It created this platform based on rules that work for European and American countries with our sort of democratic norms, our, you know, our tendencies towards free speech, our, you know, our, our values of free speech, also our institutions like a free press and NGOs and think tanks. They are now operating in a number of countries that don't have those things. Um, you know, Myanmar is a very famous uh, worst case scenario that we cover in our book, but there are many other countries out there, autocracies, dictatorships, monarchies, that are using Facebook in ways that really challenge how Facebook was created and what Facebook's rules are. 
And if Facebook continues to try to seek this one size fits all approach, I think they're going to keep running into really serious problems, including, I, I think, unfortunately, people who get killed as a result of things said on Facebook. And so contending with that, what is a global company do in the face of that, I, I think is going to be something that's incredibly important in the next decade. Myanmar is a really uh, powerful example of how Facebook can, and if you, know, you want to attribute the blame to Facebook, can go wrong. For our audience, uh, you know, I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand exactly what's going on there. You know, what is happening in Myanmar and how is Facebook, in your view, responsible? Well, you know, in our book, we look at the introduction of the internet to Myanmar, which really means the introduction of Facebook. This is a country that came online through cell phones in 2015, and Facebook, through telecommunication companies, really aggressively pushed its product into the country. But without any media literacy, what happened, and I was there on the ground when this happened, so I remember the conversations with people, they didn't understand that they were putting something online that anyone could see, including the government. So you had a lot of arrests of activists, of LGBT activists and human rights workers. And they also didn't understand, because no one could talk to them about it or told them, that things on Facebook weren't vetted. There was this idea, well, it's an American company. They're a wealthy American Silicon Valley company. If I see something there, it must be real. It must be fact-checked. I can't tell you how many people told me that whatever was on Facebook was fact-checked. And it didn't matter how many times I said to them, no, no, Facebook doesn't work that way. They're not fact-checking this content. Um, I remember really vividly someone showed me an ISIS video of, um, that had been shot in um, northern Syria of members of ISIS beheading people. And I said to them, this is a video that was shot in Syria. And they said, no, no, this is a video in Thailand. And it shows Rohingya Muslims killing Buddhists. And I said, no, no, that's definitely not what this video is. I'm telling you, I can show you here. It came from this source. They didn't believe me. They believed Facebook. And so I think to understand what happened with the hate speech in Myanmar, with the subsequent genocide that happened in Myanmar, you have to understand that this was a country really fueled by anger over what they saw on Facebook. Um, you know, I know, uh, you know, obviously the election is, is such a huge, you know, incredible example of the, of the power of, of Facebook. And I wonder, you know, we talk so much about Mark and Cheryl, but I wonder how much blame you ascribe to the employees. So for example, uh, the Russian meddling that you know, employees saw necessarily, you know, obviously before Mark and Cheryl ever knew. Do you think there was a, a cover-up or do you think it was more sort of naivete about mm -hmm. what was actually happening, how important it was, how important it was to disclose and the possible consequences? And if so, is it something that it's, is it something more cultural or is it yeah. really something that we lay blame at, at the feet of the people running this company? Well, I do think it's really important to understand structural and cultural problems there. And there were warnings. The security team was warning from very early on, well, be, well beyond a year before any of this became public. Um, they were sending reports to their managers, warning, explaining what they were seeing on the site. And they were seeing interference and they were seeing then they were seeing the IRA backed backed um, ads that were being purchased and when I mentioned cultural and structural they were telling their managers who were telling their managers which led up all the way to the general counsel and all the way up to Elliot Schrag who is the VP of comms at the time and at that level those pe individuals were saying well 
look, do you actually really have enough information? Is it really clear? And the security team was sort of screaming, yes, we do. This is a huge problem. And I, culturally, it's, so that's just one of the structural problems. So they didn't bring this, those reports up to Mark and Cheryl. And culturally, it's important to understand that there's not a lot of incentive at Facebook to bring difficult information or news that is not really you know, sort of the the kind of information that Mark and Cheryl are would you know are are part of driving the company business forward. So all of these things are nuisances in a way, and so the company does not have the incentive to look around the corner for problems because it's not about those are not about growth. So culturally, there's not a real there's a not real push to actually bring upsetting and and um, problematic warnings to the top leadership. So and we show that in these chapters related to Russia. And I think that's really important to understand in how Facebook functions and why the leadership is such a, when you ask about blame, a lot of it goes back to the top leadership and the culture they set. So if Facebook employees, this is another question, are mostly happy and legislators are largely tech illiterate, where is the best place to look for accountability? By the way, I think legislators are starting to catch on. Yeah, I think uh, so. The more, the more recent sure. hearings have, the legislators have, have been much more educated. I, it's, I mean, legislators are more educated and employees are more educated. Um, I think it's both, to be honest. And I do think employees are challenging their leadership more and more and saying they want change. Um, you know, just in the last year alone, the number of employees that have asked questions of the leadership in which they've insisted and said, no, you know, we're seeing the news reports and we don't just want a rote PR answer here. We want something um, more definitive, right? I, I think that in a small way is change as well. Let's talk about the emerging threats because, you know, so, so much about the story of Facebook is um, getting rid of threats that are in the way yeah. or trying to neutralize them. Um, are there any emerging competitors on the horizon that you mm. see that could be a real threat to Facebook? And of course, that's also Instagram and WhatsApp, um, which are stronger than ever. Yeah, yeah. I think this is what keeps Mark up at night. I think he's incredibly nervous about the popularity and rise of TikTok. Um, and he evokes TikTok in meetings with, you know, um, politicians, uh, warning about a Chinese type internet and Chinese apps, you know, becoming dominant. Um, I, I think he's really concerned about what's around the corner. This is why he's very interested in blockchain and the Libra project, which is now called DM. This is why he's thinking about the metaverse and why he's so obsessed with AR and VR. Um, so, I mean, he's sort of like a shark, you know, he just feels like he can't sleep, you know, he has to always swim, you know? And so, and I, 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 and I think most tech CEOs are like that. Um, but yeah, I think that those, the emerging threats to him are business for sure. I do, we do know in our conversations that he feels incredibly emboldened right now and that, that the, that the federal, the U S district court threw out that lawsuit from the FTC and States, those, those entities, those government officials are going to refile, but yes, he felt he feels right now that one of the biggest obstacles, a very existential threat of breaking up the company is now at least temporarily and more than temporarily removed. When you said most tech CEOs are like that, I instantly thought, is, is there something, though, that's different about Mark Zuckerberg? Yeah. Tech CEOs, because he is, you know, at this point, I, I mean, he's probably the most recognizable uh, tech CEO. <laughs> Um, and do you think there's something different about his psyche or the way he leads or the way he competes? Um, 
than Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs or, um, well, you know, there's a short list actually. Elon Musk, there's another one. <laughs> um, you know, in some ways he sort of is the model for those, right? And, and Mark Zuckerberg, I think he took advice and he learned very much from the people that were around when he started Facebook, like Steve Jobs, in that he made sure that his power was more absolute than others who had come before him. He is the majority stakeholder. He is the chief executive, the founder. He structured this company in a way that nobody could wrest control away from him. And he doesn't seem inclined to step down in the way that some other people, I think, um, would have. You have to remember, he was also much younger than many of his sort of counterparts in that in that you know list that you just gave. He's much, much younger. So I think he's also planning on sticking around longer before he moves on to that next thing, whether, you know, as Bill Gates did, moving on to the foundation, Mark has the, the Chan Zuckerberg Foundation that people have talked about him eventually moving on towards. But I think he's going to sit at the top of Facebook for a long time. Do you have a pulse on this? this is a question from the audience. It's a good one. Do you have a pulse on how Facebook's board members feel mm. about them, him now, especially how to manage him in light of these issues? Do any of them have more influence than uh, the others, um, i.e., mm -hmm. question asked, could we see the board attempt to oust Zuckerberg? They can't. They don't have the power to do that. So, I mean, I think it's really important to understand that the board is is sort of a paper tiger. It's like a, it's it's an advisory board. I mean, Donald Graham, the former chairman of the Washington Post, described it that way to us in our reporting. Is that you know, really, we're we're there to give advice. You know, we don't really have a lot of power over a lot of the big decisions. Um, they uh, uh, the new slate, and a lot of the board is new. Um, over the last year. The new slate of um, board members, I don't have a great feel except for that it's a little bit more of the same, that they they do advise. Um, the former board, the board members who have recently left over the last year were really respected people of politics, leadership, business, et cetera. There's Ken Chenault, there was Erskine Bowles, there was Jeff Science. There are a lot of people who have since left. Susan Desmond Holman left as well, right? Yeah, she left as well. Um, so all very respected in their fields. Our reporting has shown that they were very discontent with the way that Facebook handled Russian interference on the site, how they handled Cambridge Analytica. They also felt that there was a lot of maybe disproportionate public backlash, maybe media backlash as well. Um, uh, not me or media coverage was too harsh. Um, so they really balanced sort of a defensiveness of the company with, with real concerns about some of the decisions that were happening. Um, our understanding is a lot of the board members were very upset with the decisions related to Trump. What was the influence or what's been the influence of Peter Thiel? Peter Thiel. So, yeah, we get this one a lot. I think <laughs> in him, there's no doubt he was an early mentor to Mark Zuckerberg and an early influence in his life. And I think that a lot of Peter Thiel's ideas about libertarianism and, and free speech, ideas which I'll add are shared by someone like Mark Andreessen, who we also see as being a huge influence to Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. But, you know, Mark comes into this and he is young. He is interested in what he's interested in, but as we document in the book, he's not much of a reader. He's not sitting around reading dozens of books about sort of the, the thinking of the day around free speech. And so I think that 
it's incredibly powerful for him to encounter Mark Andreessen's and Peter Thiel's ideas and to implement them as his own. And then, you know, to kind of imagine over the years to say, this also makes great business sense. If I can say that as a CEO, as a chief executive, I should not be making really big sweeping decisions about content because it violates free speech. And that also is great for my business. You, you can see how that's attractive. Um, what are your thoughts on the oversight board? Are they independent? Oh. Is Zuckerberg happy with them? Do they have much power at all? Yeah. So the oversight board is independent. Absolutely. Um, in that, um, it was created by a trust and, you know, it's structurally they're independent. Then the, they, and they've made some really interesting decisions. I think the decision that they made to toss back a, a final, a final, you know, judgment on whether Trump should stay or not on the, on the platform back to Facebook was a really smart one. And because, because they essentially said, you can't, Make ask us to make that decision when you don't even have clear rules in place for how you deal with political figures and how you deal with misinformation that they spew. So, um, so that was a smart thing because essentially they were telling Facebook, start doing your the work, start creating like real policies that are consistent and clear to the public. Um, so that was smart. Well, the amount of power they have is you know, it's not a lot in the sense that they take only a few cases that they can handle at a time. Um, they recommend decisions to, to Facebook. Um, not all the decisions are binding. So it's like there's, there's definitely more that they could be taking on to be truly effective. I mean, so right now they're sort of a symbolic Supreme Court. They're not in effect dealing with the scale of content and the many, many borderline and dicey decisions that Facebook has to make every day. I sometimes think of it as they're a Supreme Court that hasn't been given a full body of laws to make decisions on. Facebook has, as Cecilia said earlier, made so many ad hoc decisions that if you are going to liken them to a Supreme Court, you have to imagine that that's a frustrating thing to try and, and create rulings or judgments off of. Um, this is an uh, interesting question. Do you think that Cheryl's lean-in era was part of her downfall? How does that play into your narrative? And downfall is obviously a loaded term. Not everyone might agree with that term. It's yeah. used in the question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Downfall, no, downfall doesn't quite, you know, I, I wouldn't use that word. I, um, I think that, you know, lean-in helped establish Cheryl Sandberg as a figure outside of Facebook, which is something she very much wanted. Uh, reputationally, she did not want to be linked to Facebook as tightly as Mark Zuckerberg has been linked to Facebook. I think that, you know, at the time that it came out, it said a lot of things about women in the workforce that hadn't been consolidated in that particular way. And, and given that love, that platform, I think that she's obviously run into problems in the years since then, because ideas around women in the workforce and what she expected them have evolved. Um, and now reading that book, it does feel like that book, I, I, you know, we've heard many feminists say this, the book comes off as a bit dated. And so I do wonder if that hasn't damaged her in recent years, the kind of coupling of the ideas and lean in being dated and reputationally the damage she's sustained at Facebook. Do you think, I mean, gosh, I feel like this question has been asked ever since I started covering Facebook 10 years ago, but will Cheryl stay? Um, How long will Cheryl stay at yeah. Facebook? You know, it's her decision to make. Again, she's incredibly important in that she still runs the business side and the business side is very successful. And so she's critically valued and important in that way. Um, 
does she want to leave now with Facebook in such a reputational low and with her name and her image attached to it? Everyone tells us, no, absolutely not. She would not leave on a low note. So it's, it's her decision to make. And the question is, does she have options to get out? And so, you know, it's, uh, you know, is even a CEO path in some other company even possible at this point? I mean, potentially, but you know, I, I think that she would want from from everything we know from about her after reporting quite a bit about her. Um, I just don't see her leaving on any sort of terms that aren't just all completely positive, you know, so so it's, it's her decision to make, though. So the last question, and you both uh, like you both to answer it. It's a tradition here at the Commonwealth Club. Um, what is your 60 second idea to change the world. Shira, you're first. Oh no. Um, a four day work week and <laughs> a year parental leave for anyone planning on becoming a parent. I love that. Cecilia? Okay, so I have something kind of related. I think we, universal free childcare, uniform, across the board, free childcare would be incredibly liberating for so many families so many individuals, single parents across the income ladder, just make it free from birth to the beginning of school free. Like forget like, you know, other, you know, social safety net things. Like I just think that would be the cost of childcare is so disproportionately high to, and it, it completely encumbers so many people's lives and their ability to work, but not only, not only to, to rise up the ladder as, as Cheryl would say and lean in, but even to fundamentally be able to work. Can you tell that we're both working mom? <laughs> hey, I've got four, so I'm right there with you. I think both of those ideas would greatly change the world. So um, thank you both. Congratulations, Shira Frankel, Cecilia Kong, for joining us at Inform at the Commonwealth Club. Their book, An Ugly Truth, Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, is on sale now. I'm Emily Chang. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, and congrats again, Cecilia and Shira, on your book. Best of luck as you continue your tour. Thank you, everyone. Emily, thank you so much. <laughs>